Welcome to the Out of the Shadows podcast. Welcome indeed to a somewhat unexpected season three of the podcast. In this episode, we welcome investigative journalist Michaela Rong. Michaela is a leading expert on Africa, particularly the Great Lakes region. She has written five books, a novel set in the Horn of Africa, and four non-fiction books. Her non-fiction and investigative work has focused on the history and politics of Congo, Eritrea, Kenya, and more recently, Rwanda. In 2021, she published Do Not Disturb, the story of a political murder and an African regime gone bad. The book explored the repressive nature of the current Rwandan regime, with a particular focus on its extraterritorial repression, including the use of assassination. Building on Michaela's book and on a report by Human Rights Watch, the episode covers the Rwandan regime, its intelligence services, and its practices, The core of the episode is a discussion of the use of extraterritorial assassinations. We cover the targets selected for assassination, the rationale behind assassination, and the methods used. We also cover plausible and implausible deniability and the signaling function of these assassinations, both at home and abroad. Finally, we cover the international consequences of impunity. We conclude the episode with Michaela's book's recommendations. Before the start, a quick reminder, you can find our episodes on SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, and now also on Spotify. If you want, let me know what you think. Michaela, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We are recording this episode on the 11th of October, 2023. And just yesterday, uh, Human Rights Watch published a new report on the Rwandan government um, extraterritorial repression including transnational assassinations and harassment of Rwandan citizens abroad or former Rwandan citizens abroad. Uh, The report is called Join Us or Die, and it paints a very uh, damning picture of the practices of the Rwandan government. And throughout the report, there is a discussion of uh, several actors, several organizations involved uh, and taking part in this system of repression. But I wanted to ask you specifically based on the nature of our podcast, if you could tell us a bit more about the intelligence services of the states in the region, um, what are their origins, and maybe what are their functions? Yes, um, thank you for having me on, Luca. Um, And uh, I read that report by uh, Human Rights Watch, just as you did. And for me, it was was, uh, a very valuable report because it it shows that the um, phenomenon uh, and the behavior that I describe um, in uh, in my book continues and has not stopped um, uh, because there had been some speculation that Rwanda was no longer going in for extraterritorial repression in the way that it had in the past. And what the Human Rights Watch report shows is that's not the case. So, um, yeah, uh, uh, when it comes to uh, the behavior, the 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 structure of um, of Rwandan surveillance and its roots, um, um, uh, I think uh, the thing to understand about Rwanda is that the ruling party, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, um, uh, which has been running Rwanda since 1994, the year of the genocide, had its roots in Uganda and in the uh, rebel movement set up uh, and led by Yoweri Museveni, the current president of Uganda. 
Um, he had set up the National Resistance Movement, the NRM, and a lot of the, the, the men who went on to become the key figures, key military leaders in Rwanda, um, were trained as young rebels with, under um, Museveni's leadership in the NRM. Um, so it, it's when you're talking about Rwanda and its system of intelligence or its military system, you're also really talking about Uganda's system of military and intelligence because that's where those men learned how to, they learned their trade in Uganda. Um, and um, I, I think uh, what we know from Uganda's history is that North Korea played a very important role there. Um, uh, that there, there was a lot of training uh, that took place in, in Uganda but, uh, uh, during the regime that was toppled by Museveni and the NRM. So uh, North Korean um, influence was visible in Uganda. Um, and also that uh, Israel had a very strong presence in Uganda. And I think, you know, leaping forward, um, the uh, comparisons and the analogies between um, Rwanda's experience, uh, a genocide experience, obviously has echoes with the Holocaust and the Jewish experience. Uh, and uh, we know that there have always been very close ties between Israel um, and the uh, Rwandan Patriotic Front, the RPF, um, that they have sent people for training in Israel, um, that uh, the uh, Rwandan intelligence uses Pegasus spyware, which is um, uh, something that was um, a, a cyber a spyware that was developed uh, by the, uh, the Israeli um, uh, military. It then uh, was taken into the private sector, but we know that those two are very closely linked in Israel. So uh, that's, some, that's a weapon uh, you know, of surveillance that the uh, Rwandans have made good use of, tracking people abroad, tracking foreign leaders, foreign politicians. Um, uh, so there are very close ties between Israel and, and the RPF now. Uh, and many of the methods when we're going to talk about the assassination attempts and the successful assassinations, you know, you can often see uh, that these are the same techniques that, that Mossad has used. I mean, it, it's very clear that there, there's um, a pattern there and the modus operandi. Um, what type of covert operations beyond assassination, and we'll move to assassination in a moment, um, but what type of covert operations do these intelligence services uh, generally uh, carry out beyond uh, the surveillance that you just mentioned? Um, well, I think the first thing uh, that happens is the Rwandan diaspora um, around the world is tracked and monitored. Um, uh, and in that, what we see is the role being played by the Rwandan embassies or high commissions in the relevant countries. Um, uh, they're very important. There will always be an intelligence agent um, uh, playing, uh, uh, you know, with a post in, in a Rwandan embassy or high commission. Um, and we also see the Rwandan community abroad. This is something that the Human Rights Watch um, report focuses on, uh, that this has, um, it's a, 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 a network of associations, 68 associations, which track and monitor the diaspora. And so uh, it's a small community of Rwandans abroad. They tend to know one another. They tend to be in constant contact with um, people back home, friends and family back home. So they, it's quite easy to form a clear understanding of what different members of the Rwandan diaspora, um, what their opinion is and their attitudes are to um, the ruling party back home. 
Um, and so the embassy, uh, the, the their first task is to to collect that information and keep tabs on who are the potential dissidents. Um, <clears throat> I mean, at the most basic level, um, of course, they are trying to track people who are wanted for playing a role in the genocide of 1994, members of that extremist um, army and that extremist uh, the militia groups that, that uh, helped carry out those killings. Um, and, you know, there are requests out from the government in Kigali to, to get those people sent back to face trial. Um, but there's also much more than that going on uh, because um, the monitoring is not only of the Hutu majority, the, that ethnic group, the majority Hutu group. Um, it's also of um, the Tutsi minority. Um, and the ruling party, of course, is mostly drawn from members of the Tutsi mm -hmm. minority. But there are many people within that Tutsi minority who are very, very unhappy at the way in which politics have developed um, uh, what they see as a dictatorship having been set up inside Rwanda. So the the embassies and the uh, Rwandan community abroad are, 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 are monitoring all those people and working out where they stand. Um, uh, and one of the key things is, that, of course, they have Rwanda days to which people are expected to turn up. If they don't turn up, that's already um, a, a bit of a clue that they are not in sympathy with the government back home. Uh, but there is also, you know, uh, there will be monitoring. I've, I've never met a Rwandan living abroad who, who wasn't very frightened of going on, on his email, um, who didn't think that his email was being um, listened to and, and monitored. Uh, people are very careful what they say on WhatsApp. Uh, they usually prefer to use something like Telegram or um, um, uh, or Signal because they think those are, are, are more discreet. They will use um, coded names. Uh, and these are people who aren't necessarily involved in politics, but everyone is very concerned about the way they're being tracked and monitored. And if you meet people, um, if you try and meet people in the diaspora, they will often, uh, you know, give you the, they'll tell you to go to a restaurant. And then, you know, when you turn up, you'll find that they're actually sitting in a cafe nearby and they're watching you because they want to make sure you've turned up on your own. So it's a very, very um, paranoid uh, community. And I think the Human Rights Watch um, report shows exactly why, because even if they're not politically engaged, they've decided to stay out of politics. They are, they are still aware they're being monitored uh, and that anything they say or do could end up impacting not so much on them if they've got um, if they've been granted asylum status abroad, but on their family back home. And they're very, very worried because, as the as the report um, uh, depicts, very often members of their family will be pulled in by the police in Rwanda, will be threatened. Sometimes, in the worst cases, they disappear completely and are presumed dead. But they will be bullied, um, beaten up in some cases, threatened, and told, you know, you need to make sure your relative abroad either he comes back or you need to make sure that he uh, he starts turning up for Rwanda Day and he starts. Um, saying pro-government things in public. And I mean, it's quite interesting, both in the report and in your book, it seems like there are various layers of uh, these in institutions tracking uh, Rwandans abroad. There seems to be a more overt and more positive-looking aspect to it with the embassies, with events, and so on. And then a somewhat semi-covert or semi-secret a uh, layer of organizations sending messages about making financial contributions and so on. And then there seems to be a, a properly covert um, yes. system of oppression, I guess. Yes. 
Yes. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the overt, just to sort of uh, complete that picture a bit, uh, one of the things that several embassies have done is to organize oathing ceremonies uh, at which um, uh, members of the diaspora are asked to stand up and take a formal oath, pledging um, loyalty to the RPF. And this is, of, of course, you know, not something that the embassy should be doing because in theory, uh, um, Rwanda is a multi-party uh, democracy and, uh, you know, the embassy should be politically neutral and shouldn't be asking people to sign a, an oath and swear an oath to the ruling party. It, it, it's also an oath that was actually used, has been used for decades now to um, to keep um, members of the ruling party in line. Um, uh, uh, and it, it's got a rather blood-curdling kickoff at the end where it, it sort of says, if I should betray the party, you know, let, let me sort of be hung by the neck. Um, uh, and this has often been uh, taken to be the reason why some of the people who who have betrayed the party and who have denounced Kagame as, um, as a dictator um, have ended up being strangled. Uh, or beheaded um, because um, it, it's there in the oath, and there. So it's a it's a, it's an oath that people take, and they take it very 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 seriously. Um, so so yeah, just to um, uh, complete that picture. Um, but but yeah, going back to the uh, the organisation back in Kigali, um, what struck me when I started writing about the subject um, and I was um, talking to it really the beginning of my book focuses on the attempted assassination of General Kayumba Nyamwasa, the former head of the armed forces um, in uh, South Africa. He had gone into exile and set up a political party there in 2010. Um, and he's been the object of, I think, four attempted assassinations. And I also focused on the successful assassination of Patrick Karagaya, the head of the external intelligence, um, who had set up the, the same uh, opposition party with General Kayumba Nyamwasa. And he was lured into a hotel room in South Africa in Johannesburg and strangled. And what, what really struck me is that um, um, uh, I, I ended up talking, interviewing, I, I think I spoke to about five or six Rwandan exiles who lived in South Africa, um, who had been separately contacted by different intelligence agencies in Rwanda. And, and the, the message they received were, you, we know you're in, in South Africa. We know occasionally you meet General Kayumba, you meet Patrick Karagaya. We know you hang out with them. Uh, you know, if you want to show that you're a good Rwandan citizen, um, uh, you have a job to carry out for us. And they would then say, well, what's the job? And they would say, you have to kill these people. Uh, and what was very, very striking um, was, you know, it's very indiscriminate who was being approached. I mean, often it would be people who were working as as taxi drivers or or nurses or, or fairly lowly jobs. Um, and uh, the, the number of people that, that were approached. But what was also very striking to me from an organizational point of view was that they were contacted by different people and different agencies. Um, uh, and the impression that was formed, and this was explained to me by, by the Rwandans I spoke to, was that um, Kagame will make it clear that um, one of his, his people that he considers to be an enemy of the state, um, that he wants them dead. Um, and then it, it's almost like sort of he sends out, you know, he asks for tenders. It's like tendering out a, a, a public works program. Um, and so the various heads of his various intelligence agencies will then compete 
to try and get the job done. Uh, and they won't liaise with each other. I mean, the intelligent thing, of course, to get somebody would be to, to coordinate your efforts. They won't do that because they want to be the first person who succeeds. And because um, Kagame, like many, many African heads of state, has relied on divide and rule amongst his intelligence agencies. Um, and so, um, you know, he has he has a whole variety of them. We can discuss that in a moment. Um, and they, they will be competing, the various heads of those agencies will be competing with one another, not cooperating to try and get the targets involved. So, you know, you would speak to one Rwandan exile in Joburg and he would say, well, I was talking to Jack and Ziza. And another would be saying, well, I was approached by Dan Manusa. And then another would be saying, well, I was approached by General so-and-so. Um, uh, so I thought that was a really interesting insight that there's so little trust between these various intelligence agencies and, and this desire to be the first person to, to deliver the job. And perhaps if there was only one of these, it would also be too big a center of power for, for the regime, I guess. I think that's what it boils down to. Um, and I, I saw the same thing. I worked in Congo at one stage under Mobutu, President Mobutu Sese Seko, and he was the same in, in the way he organized his army and also his intelligence agencies. Um, and you also see this everywhere, really, in Africa, in Eritrea and in Uganda, uh, in that you get a head of state who realizes he's overstayed his welcome in, in, when it comes to his own population. Um, he's routinely rigging uh, elections um, and he will realize that there's dissent within the army, within, uh, within his armed forces. So uh, he'll also realize that maybe, you know, many of his closest his colleagues who've known him since he was a young man, who know his weaknesses, knows the crimes he's committed, they're not that happy with his performance. So what he does is he plays this game of divide and rule and he sets these various people up against one another. Uh, and he 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 basically none of them will be talking to the other players. They will all be reporting straight to the head of state. Um, and so the head of state has all the knowledge. You know, he's the only person who knows everything. They all only know what they know from their own particular network, which they pass on to him, but they won't know what's happening in the other, you know, the other parts of the intelligence and security uh, network. Um, so I asked a, a, a Rwandan friend just to talk me recently through all the various agencies. And he, uh, I mean, in Rwanda, you have the, the NISS, uh, which is the equivalent of MI6 and MI5. Um, uh, and then you have the Directorate for Military um, Information, which is the DMI, which is a military organization, of course. Then you have the Republican Guard, um, the Presidential Guard, which has its own in intelligence service. Uh, then, of course, you have the police, which have their, their own intelligence network. Um, and then you have a sort of civilian network of uh, intelligence um, uh, agents. Um, so uh, the, that, that's an awful lot of different agencies vying for Kagame's approval and attention. Uh, and of course, the end result of having all these different agencies with their different bosses. I mean, one thing that Kagame does is he constantly moves these people around. That's another methodology to make sure that they don't build up. Uh, loyal following. Mm -hmm. um, so, so these these you see the same names, the same generals who are being constantly moved from, you know, NISS to DMI to police, and then often he'll send them off to be when he feels really threatened by them, he'll send them off to be an ambassador abroad mm -hmm. because that means they are 
you know, marginalized and, and distanced from Kiga, uh, from um, from Rwanda. That, 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 that's what happened to General Kayumba Nyamwasa, who find him, found himself being sent off to India. India yeah. um, and it's happened to many other uh, influential generals. General Kayonga was in China. You know, others have been sent to Ethiopia. So it's a way of getting um, possibly dangerous, you know, rivals out of this, out of the picture. Um, uh, so, 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 yeah, so they, 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 they get constantly churned around, stops them building up, um, uh, followers, stops them from becoming a, a potential threat to, to Kagame. Um, we already mentioned, and you already mentioned in your, in your response, uh, a couple of, uh, targets that were identified for assassination or in one case attempted assassination. And the Human Rights Watch report yesterday gave uh, some quantitative and sort of qualitative details about them. It, they said that uh, there were over a dozen high-profile government opponents and critics targeted since uh, the RPF came to power. And then this report focused in particular on five sort of high-profile cases since 2021. Uh, but I found quite interesting that more generally there was a point about sort of who gets targeted, who are the types of individuals that get targeted. And the report identified three main people, sort of uh, a general category of very influential and very wealthy people in the, the refugee community. And then uh, a second category of uh, political opponents or critics of the regime. Um, and a third category, which I guess is where your, your two examples fit, that were formerly part of the RPF uh, and sometimes the RPA and might have become... Uh, more critical of the regime over time or had decided um, to leave uh, Rwanda to uh, and, and find refuge in another country. And I was wondering to what extent this uh, uh, classification sort of uh, conforms to your uh, to your research and, and to a certain extent whether uh, there was a certain threshold of activity of importance after which assassination becomes... Um, and available and maybe the preferred options is there something that um yes i i think um yeah i mean definitely that cat categorization is useful uh in the in the first category you know of the funders i would have thought um Tribe, they they don't mention it in the report but Tribe Rujigiru is an obvious uh, candidate he he's an extremely wealthy businessman um who um uh, is on the forbes you know, richest men in the world list. Um, and he he now lives um, abroad. I believe he he spends his time either in Dubai or in South Africa. And and the irony, of course, is that he was um, a former funder of the RPF when it was in exile and before it had seized power in the 1990s. But at a certain stage, obviously became a critic of Paul Kagame and has had um, all, his, um, all his assets in the country seized including a shopping mall that he had built, the only shopping mall in Kigali, uh, and is widely now seen as an enemy of the state, um, who, you know, they accuse of funding the Rwanda National Congress, which is not the, the, the opposition movement set up by former RPF insiders. Um, so he would fall into that um, that category. Um, the um, it, Yeah, and then there are opponents and critics, and of course those would in, include human rights activists and and also journalists who have paid a very high price for trying to do independent journalism. And most of whom are, uh, are now living abroad and many of whom have died in very, very suspicious circumstances inside Rwanda. 
Um, uh, but then, yes, there is this category of, of former RPF um, officials. Um, and, um, and I think those are the ones that, um, that Kagame really, really wants to take out because these are men who have known him since Uganda, since he was a young refugee growing up in a Ugandan refugee camp. You know, and they were refugees too in many cases. Not not all. Some of them were actually indigenous Ugandans of 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 uh, of uh, uh, Banya Rwanda origin, but who went back, you know, for generations. They were actually Ugandans. Um, uh, and I think the, 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 these these men are regarded as as the men who who know too much about him, um, and and also they they are feared because um, they have considerable military experience. I mean, they're very battle-hardened men who have fought in Uganda, who've who who who've led military campaigns inside Rwanda and inside Congo, uh, and so you know, and they've got loyal troops behind them. So so they have been. There's been a real attempt to marginalise them, <clears throat> but um, but I mean, my feeling reading the the Rwanda um, the the Human Rights Watch report, and this is something that I I guess I I a feeling that has sort of developed in me over the last few years is that it's become quite indiscriminate. Um, you know, those are definitely the three main categories, but that there's a lot of onlookers that get caught up in this. You know, when you you, when you read about this this um football coach in 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 Mozambique who was stabbed to death, you know, um who appears to have not been a member of an opposition party um but um uh who 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 was a bit too outspoken in his views um uh you know and when you when you read the stories of of um people who've disappeared uh and are presumed dead but um uh who have disappeared inside Rwanda um quite often uh these these were not sort of either members of the ruling political par- uh, ruling party uh, nor were they military men they were sort of onlookers and i and i think the problem is that if you have a, a regime and a system where um people are carrying out assassinations and there is no obvious punishment or 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 pushback or pri- no price is paid by the government you know the, by the ruling party that is organizing and um and commissioning these attacks um the net becomes ever wider and then you you just sweep up an awful lot of people and and you know it's worth pointing out that any uh, human rights watch is a very careful human rights organization they check every single case they mention so that for every case that they they list and they name the people involved there will probably be about two or three that they didn't quite meet the criteria. They couldn't quite confirm what had happened. They couldn't quite work out, you know, whether or not the ruling party was involved, whether this was a, a targeted hit, and they won't include that. So um, I think it's that the, the, the network has become very wide and rather rather loose. And that's why people are so frightened because, um, you know, I've met people in, in Brussels and in, in France who who really wanted to stay out of politics in, in Rwanda and they're living abroad and they never intend to go home and they still are frightened, you know, because they still get calls from family members back home saying, come back, come back, you know, and and they know that the reason those family members are calling them to go back home is because they've been contacted by Rwandan intelligence or the Rwandan police and there's no way they're going to go back home and they don't know what it is they're supposed to have done wrong. It may just be something like, 
you know, reading um, a, a, a sort of statement or liking something on Twitter by someone who's vaguely critical of the Rwandan uh, regime or or it may just be that as I said it's a small community and the fact that they aren't turning up for Rwanda Day has been noticed uh, and they haven't agreed to sort of retake some kind of RPF oath um, or they've said too much you know over a couple of beers in a, in a bar somewhere in Europe or in um, in North America so um, I think I think the the network has become very wide and a bit flabby um, I think you mentioned two excellent points that I want to come back uh, in a moment, the, 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 the sort of role of signaling of these operations for the broader community, both in Rwanda and outside, um, and also the role of impunity um, and the lack of international reaction. I, I will come back to those yeah. uh, topics um, in a moment. But I wanted to ask you, in the book, you have a, a couple of interesting pages in which there is an almost semi-official discussion of the rationale behind assassination that draws back on the example, again, that we mentioned earlier of Mossad and Israel and a sort of rhetoric of preemption. Yeah. And in the book, you almost have a sort of disclaimer that says, but actually we have to take that with a with a certain caution. It seems uh, too, too precise and so on. So I was wondering, to what, what do you think is the rationale behind uh, these assassination is it regime preservation? Is it personal? Um, well, I, I think the real rationale is that it's Paul Kagame making sure that he remains president for the rest of his life, and then when he hands over, uh, you know, I find it very amusing when people start talking about who will succeed Paul Kagame and suggest it's anyone you know other than a member of his close family, because it seems to me very clear that he's lining up either his daughter or his son to replace him. Uh, and one of the problems is when you, you know, this is a separate issue, but when you've committed as many crimes as Paul Kagame has, um, it's very hard to hand over to someone who's not a family member because um, your, your first concern is that you might end up, you know, before the International Criminal Court being judged and for, for mass atrocities um, and targeted in assassinations. Um, uh, so I think that's I think that's the first um, motivation. But of course, that's not the way it's presented, and that's not the sort of ideological framework in which uh, in which it falls. Um, and and yes, there has been this discourse which Patrick Karagaya, the the man whose assassination I describe in the book, uh, once um, uh, enunciated when he was meeting a, a, a Ugandan businessman, and that Ugandan businessman told me all about it. I thought it was fascinating because it was very much based on this Israeli approach, which is we're a small country, we've only just survived this devastating genocide. We nearly our community was nearly obliterated, the Tutsi community. Um, uh, we cannot afford to have another war on our soil. So what we're going to do is we're going to externalize it, uh, and we're going to fight a preemptive fight by taking out you know, possible challenges and possible enemies abroad. And we will be ruthless about doing that and unabashed and unashamed, which is, I imagine, you know, that the, the rationale that Mossad would produce if it was if it was asked. Where, of course, it falls down is the people who are being assassinated, who are seen as, as threats, uh, are now former members of the ruling the ruling elite, you know, former Tutsis. Including who, the person who explained this justification himself. Yes, and and yes, and and this is the ultimate irony that he was explaining this rationale and this methodology, and he fell victim to it because that's not what's actually going on. It's not that they're taking out an external threat. You know, it's not as though they they are targeting 
members of the Hutu, uh, exclusively members of the Hutu uh, majority who still, you know, dream of finishing the genocide and wiping out Tutsi power. Um, the people that, that they're most concerned about are former insiders and for people like General Kayumba Nyamwasa, because, um, uh, you know, they are the most credible uh, rivals uh, uh, and threats to Paul Kagame. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's, a, it's a false narrative. But it, it was the one that at that time, you know, um, Patrick Karagaya enunciated when he was talking to a, a Ugandan businessman. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but uh, but yeah, it, complete, it makes absolutely no sense when you examine it. Um, something that I wanted to explore as well is is like is the methods used. You you this uh, one of the cases you just mentioned was strangled in uh, a hotel room. Yeah, uh, and but you have a couple of lines in the book in which you suggest that poison might have been used and that poison is one of the preferred methods. Uh, well, yes, yes, poison comes up repeatedly when you're talking to Rwandans. And I remember when I was in Rwanda um, meeting a Nigerian doctor who was working in a hospital there. And I was saying, well, what, what's it like working in a hospital? You know, what, what are the most cases that you get presented with? And he said, well, one of our biggest problems is that Rwandans will come in saying they've been poisoned. And uh, and we have to explain to them that we can't, you know, we can't find out if that's true. It's very hard to detect poison and, um, you know, suggest that maybe they may have some other physical problem. But he said it's, it's almost universal. This is, you know, we'll, we'll get patients presenting themselves saying, I think I may have been poisoned. Can you check, doctor? Um, uh, so it, it's a theme that runs through uh, Rwandan culture um, historically. Um, uh, but I, but I, having started out being quite skeptical about it as a as a sort of Western journalist working in Africa, you know, you sort of think poison. Oh, yeah, well, that's um, that really probably just means somebody's had a heart attack or a stroke or something, and uh, nobody nobody knew exactly how to to detect that and so they just say oh he's been poisoned but i i've come to rethink this because there have been um um conversations taped by members of the opposition between um uh the the the, the heads of intelligence who were commissioning these hits um and the uh, various rwandan exiles they were trying to turn into and t- trying to groom them as assassins and they would say we can send you the poison and it only takes a few drops and it works. No one will detect it, just slip it into their soup. So um, they certainly thought they had access to the required poison. And also um, what I'm seeing more and more is there are more and more cases across Africa of fatal poisoning. So in, in Kenya, it's quite clear that recently there've been a few high profile poisonings connected with the IC, the International Criminal Court case there with a lawyer who, who was um, due to um, deliver, uh, to give a, uh, some witness statements he was he was um it was pretty obvious it was a poisoning and it was fatal and he and his son were both targeted the son survived he did not uh, and also we know that Jacob Zuma in South Africa the former president of South Africa was absolutely obsessed with being poisoned uh, partly because the apartheid um, regime of South Africa used to use poison as a method and so Jacob Zuma lo- long after the passing of apartheid was uh, constantly being checked up to see if he'd been poisoned. Uh, we also have seen of course Russia using Novichok and various other po- nerve agents and poisons um, in Europe you know with alacrity in my own country um and um sorry we have some background noise <laughs> okay i don't i don't think it's okay uh, so we we know that poison is being used uh, by russia 
uh, around the world. And um, I think my scepticism about the use of poison has gone now. And I think it is it's a credible fear. And it's definitely um, a method of choice um, for the Rwandans because it's so hard to de de detect. And it's so easy for somebody to say, well, um, that person probably, you know, just had a heart attack or, or some other ailment. And I guess historically, building on my own research, the CIA, especially in the early Cold War, also used poison or delivered poison. Well, absolutely. Or We've just seen the, this book published into Patrice Lumumba's um, uh, assassination. And, and one of the methods that the Americans considered yeah. using, they didn't use it in the end, was um, a poison that yeah. was sent to the CIA agent in Kinshasa by Joe from Paris, as he was called. Yeah. Uh, we're moving towards uh, uh, the last few questions, but I wanted to uh, pick up on something you mentioned about the, the tr these transcripts that were this audio uh, files and then transcripts that were published in, in various newspapers. Um, within intelligence studies, there is a lot of debate about uh, plausible deniability and implausible deniability. Traditionally, we've understood that intelligence services should conduct their operations in a plausibly deniable manner. But we've seen in many cases that actually this has become less relevant and states often use implausible deniability, meaning they have no particular problem in acknowledging a certain role uh, in these covert operations because they put a premium more on the signaling function uh, yeah. of these yes. covert operations. I think the same is true with certain um, some recognition or some statements from yeah, Rwandan Yeah, that's exactly the case. I mean, what you would see when um, a high-profile Rwandan is assassinated, this was particularly true in Patrick Karagaya's case, is that um, Paul Kagame would give an interview to, you know, the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal, in which he'd say, of course we didn't do it, nothing to do with us. And then he would add in brackets, but I wish we had. But then, um, you know, uh, he uh, people lower down uh, in the echelons, you know, General Kabarebe, the defense minister or his foreign minister, would be crowing with delight that this that this assassination had taken place very publicly. Um, uh, and also what happens is, is you see a very different discourse in Kenya, Rwanda, coming from Paul Kagame, uh, uh, to what is uh, he says in English, because, you know, in English, he's talking to the diplomatic community. In Kenya Rwanda, he's talking to his domestic audience. And in in those Kenya Rwanda talks, he'll be very explicit often. Um, and you know, one of the explicit comments he's made repeatedly is, is look at what happened to these guys. You know, you can run, but you can't hide. You know, wherever you go, we will find you. And he he has said that repeatedly. Um, you say something in a morning prayer ceremony or that during that was quite fitting. It I was guess. extraordinary. He said that quite soon after Patrick Kairagaya had been strangled. And he said, you know, uh, don't think you can ever get away from us. You know, where, wherever you go, we will find you. Which is, you know, you're having a prayer breakfast. Yeah, and that breakfast. is a message, you know, that, that and everyone applauds, of course, because all the good and the great of Rwanda are there. And they're staring at this guy with complete terror in their eyes. And um, so that's not what you call somebody denying his role. If, if anything, he's he's he may not say the words "I did it," but you know, I I ordered it. But it's as near as damn it. Um, and um, and that that's exactly you know, if if you have managed to take out one of your your enemies, 
your perceived enemies abroad. You want everyone to know that it was you. You don't really want any ambiguity about that. So, you know, you'll you'll give that token interview to a Western journalist in which you will say, oh, yeah, no, it had nothing to do with us. But I do wish we had done it. Uh, and then in Kenya, Rwanda, speaking to your audience, that you want you want them to know who is the boss and who is in power and 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 who they need to be afraid of and not to ever think of doing what this guy who's just been strangled in South Africa did, which is to stand up and defy you. So uh, yeah, there's um, yes, it's 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 definitely a, a double message, and there's no attempt to hide what happened in in Kenya, Rwanda. There are those interesting two dimensions of signaling, signaling to your own domestic community and signaling, of course, to the to the international community. Yeah. Uh, and something you discuss in the book and the Human Rights Watch report also makes makes clear. And to be honest, it's also something that I'm looking at in my uh, current and, and future research is the sort of a, the lack or the very moderate extent uh, of international reaction and repercussions for these killing in spite of their sort of implausible deniability and at times the sort of collusion or yes. I guess yes. complicit attitude of certain governments yes uh, towards this yeah no this as a, as a foreign correspondent this is what I find most uh exasperating because uh what what you've seen happening in the UK this happened in uh, 2011 you've seen the same thing happening in uh, in Belgium um uh, you've seen worse than this happening in South Africa is is is, is um you will see uh the local police force metropolitan police here in in the UK, uh, the Belgian equivalent, um, and they will go and and go and see members of the high profile members of the Rwandan diaspora, and they will say, "We know that your life is in danger." And presumably, the only reason they can know that is because they are monitoring the um, the communications between the Rwandan embassy or Rwandan intelligence and Kigali. Um, and they say, "We know your life is in danger. You need to take appropriate." precautions and then they'll say well we can't give you 24-hour protection but you know you might want to install cctv you might want to vary your your route the routes you take to work and so on the one hand they are warning people which actually they're legally obliged to do in the uk this is the legal requirement of the police if they know someone is the target of a of an assassination plot um but they're not protecting them uh, uh and i i i think that's extraordinary and and what's extraordinary is you know what why is that allowed to continue? So apart from private discussions between the Rwandan government, you know, Kagame or his personal assistant, you know, when he passes through uh, London, in which apparently this, you know, these threats against exiles here in London in 2011 was raised in conversations with the Minister for Development um and uh and uh and kagame and they were told you know and kagame was told not not to continue down this route apart from that that's as far as it goes and these um these communications and these threats are, are kept private they were leaked to uh the british press uh by someone in the foreign office because he was so astonished by the the authorities that the british authorities approach um, uh, but that's as far as it goes. You would have thought maybe the embassy might be closed down uh, or, you know, the ambassador asked to leave um, or that there might have been a press conference given it, which, you know, <laughs> the British police might have explained what they knew and why they were giving these warnings out to not one, not two, but three, I think it was between three and four Rwandan exiles living here. 
Um, I find it astonishing. In South Africa, where I spend a lot of time because, you know, there the assassination attempts were successful, um, uh, it took five years to have an inquest into the killing of Patrick Karagaya. And what became very clear, I attended that inquest. I was one of only a tiny, tiny number of journalists who bothered to even turn up for it. Um, and, and what became clear was that the South African authorities knew that that um, um, that assassination had been staged by agents who'd been sent over, who were, you know, dispatched, you know, who had links. The phrase used was closely linked to the South African government, uh, to the Rwandan government, closely linked. Um, and that they had, um, the, the South African police had briefed um, the, the South African government to that extent. And, it, and a decision had been taken that there would be no prosecution as a result. Uh, and in the end, because of the pressure from the family, because of the attention from journalists like me, there was an inquest staged and it ruled that the man had been um, assassinated, Patrick Carragher had been assassinated and two arrest warrants were issued. But those men and those, you know, and the, the extradition requests were sent to, to the Rwandan, the justice ministry in Rwanda, um, by the National Prosecutor's Office in in um, in uh, in Johannesburg, and those two men have not been extradited, which tells you everything because you know they're being protected by the state because they were working for the state. Um, and have the South Africans insisted? Of course, no, they haven't. They, they, there was um, an occasion in which they 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 expelled. They did expel. Um, they closed down. Um, they more they effectively closed down the South Af uh, the Rwandan um, embassy in South Africa uh, because um, three diplomats were expelled. Uh, but this was only after yet another attack had been uh, uh, made on uh, General Kayumba Nyamwasa. So it took um, a shooting of General Kayumba Nyamwasa, an attempt to kill him in his clinic uh, where he was being treated as a result of his wounds, uh, the strangling of uh, Patrick Karagaya, and a raid by Rwandan uh, agents on his safe house where he was being sheltered by the South Africans before they actually expelled any diplomats so what you see again and again is this this extraordinary um uh, uh impunity um no attempt to bring the rwandan authorities um you know to to <laughs> to, to make them accountable for what what has been done uh, and i'm afraid this ties into a bigger picture which is that you know the west and many other african states regard rwanda as a useful partner in the in the sort of campaign to combat Islamic jihadism uh, across Africa, um, and so they don't want to draw too much attention to the fact that Rwanda is running an extraterritorial assassination campaign. And I think you you draw the attention in the book to various sort of historical, such as the sense of guilt, the Western sense of guilt, and strategic reasons. For example, the use of uh, Rwandan forces in various missions in in, in the African continent. Uh, to be partially behind this lack of international diplomatic uh, repercussions against the government. And I find it quite interesting because the same applies also to other countries. Um, Heidi Blake talks about a similar process, at least initially, with Russia, where the financial interest for Western countries and the strategic interest in the hope that Russia could sort of uh, come in from the cold uh, led several Western countries to completely ignore the campaign uh, of assassination abroad. Uh, that Russia was conducting. It took the Skripal and eventually the war in Ukraine to finally 
um, turn turn the page on this. So I guess this is quite interesting. I think you have a point towards the end of the book in which you say that basically it is this impunity that makes um, these assassination more frequent and more uh, yes brazen in yeah. their in their techniques. Yes, absolutely. I mean, in this context, it's just worth mentioning the case of Mozambique, where um, we've seen um, the Rwandan embassy opening there. Um, and uh, according to my sources, they say the Rwandan High Commission there is a center for intelligence operations um, in southern Africa now, that, that it has moved from South Africa, where it was based, to Mozambique. And that we're seeing um, members, important members of the um, the Rwandan diaspora, being targeted uh, uh, inside Mozambique, and and Revocat Karimanjingo, who was um, a very um, high profile businessman, probably the most successful businessman in the community, there was shot um, outside his home, um, uh, and and this is linked to the fact that the Rwandans have deployed a troop of one thousand five hundred soldiers to Mozambique with the blessing of France, with the European Union's funding in part, um, to combat uh, this Islamic group that had closed down the total massive gas installation in Cabo Delgado. So what you see is um, a, a, a direct bargain being made between the um, both the Mozambican government, but also um, the international community where they're saying, you know, we're worried about Islamic terrorism in Africa, we also have considerable assets, you know, the, that gas installation, liquefied gas installation. And if the uh, local Rwandan community uh, bears the brunt of a, a, a deployed Rwandan um, force with all that that implies in terms of uh, uh, intelligence backup and this determination always we see with the Rwandans to hunt down perceived enemies in the diaspora communities so be it you know it doesn't really bother us too much mm. uh, and so yeah there has been uh, the cases in Mozambique are, are very worrying and they're very recent uh, but I think across across um, Africa you're seeing a trade-off um, taking place between um, uh, the West, which is doesn't want to send, you know, mm. Western troops to Africa to deal with trouble spots there. I mean, we only recently saw NATO withdrawing from Afghanistan. Um, uh, it, it it really is very happy to delegate and um, those those uh, those operations to um, to African troops. Rwanda has always shown this readiness and this this alacrity to offer uh, its peacekeeping troops to uh, African hotspots. Uh, and so the West uh, is saying to itself, well, yeah, we know that this is the way uh, Kagame operates. We know he is taking people out. We know that he shows a complete contempt for rule of law in our own countries and um, and is, um, you know, constantly... Uh, reaching out and 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 targeting people uh, on our soil, uh, but you know we have a lot at stake now in 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 being on good terms with Rwanda, um, and of course the final uh, element in this calculation, this very cynical calculation being made by um, by many Western countries, is is immigration. So what you've seen recently is um, Britain, my own country. Uh, but also apparently the Danes have been playing with a similar um, operation. Also, I gather the Dutch have and the Germans have expressed an interest where Rwanda has is not only offering 
um, to send peacekeepers around Africa, it's also saying we will take your unwanted asylum seekers. And so uh, what you've seen is uh, Britain has suddenly become, you know, completely blind to any any human rights um, uh, abuses committed by uh, Rwanda uh, outside its territory or at home because it is so determined to see this deal that has that was signed uh, last year between the Home Office here and and Kigali uh, reach fruition because sending migrants, asylum seekers to Rwanda is a key part now of this right-wing government's um, uh, rhetoric or, on how it's going to be tough on immigration. Uh, and, and as a result, you know, the British government will not sing, utter a single word of criticism about Rwanda at the moment. And until that deal has either sort of gone, gone ahead uh, and reached fruition or been scuppered by the courts or by the fact that we may have an election which will topple that right-wing government quite soon, um, they, they are not going to say anything about Rwanda's extraterritorial repression. Which, of course, is incredibly detrimental, if not fatal, to sort of international norms, international law, and so on, because norm violators go unpunished. Yes. Uh, and so, and nothing happens. And well, also, I think what what you what you have to to look at is that if um, if Rwanda does this, other countries look at it and think, oh, they got away with that. Well, we could do the same. Yeah. Uh, and I think this, you know, what 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 you see in Africa is a lot of African leaders, often African government ministers. Will 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 publicly say, you know, we need to learn from Rwanda. We need to be like them. And of course, when they say this in public, they're they're usually saying, oh, you know, look at their growth rates, which, by the way, I've always thought was fairly, you know, not 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 figures that that can be trusted. But uh, look at their development. Look at their reconstruction. But what they're also saying is, look at the fact that this is a, a government which gets away with uh, obviously rigged elections you know, time and time again, which basically runs a police state where things like freedom of the press, the rule of law, um, the ind independence of the judiciary are not respected. Um, and yet, you know, they are the favorite African state mm -hmm. uh, for the West, the international community. They receive millions, you know, every year they receive million, you know, tens of millions in terms of aid. Um, and um, they do not pay a price for the fact that they send troops into neighboring countries uh, or that they run an extraterritorial assassination campaign. And I guess there is an establishment of constant historical precedents. If the US does it, if Israel does it, if Russia yes. does it, India does it, Absolutely. potentially, if yes. Rwanda does it, then it becomes a sort of. Yes, and you know, I thought it would be in this area. very interesting to see what happened recently in Canada with India. Yeah. Um, where, you know, uh, Canada called it out when India, you know, everyone suspects that India was behind the assassination of that human rights, that Sikh human rights activist. But again, very little repercussions diplomatically or... Well, there, there may be repercussions for Canada, but it is... Yeah, not, not for India. But not, not, yeah. as far, yeah. not as yeah. far as the rest of the world is, is concerned. Uh, yeah. And I think, yeah, the trouble is, you know, if, if one country does this, other countries think they can do it too. Uh, we come to the end um, of our episode. And before we conclude, as usual, I would like to ask you, uh, based on your work, if you would have three books that you would recommend to sort of better understand either Rwanda or the broader region. And of course, you can uh, publicize your own work. Uh, that's always <laughs> a possibility. Well, 
Well, my own work is Do Not Disturb, which came out in French recently. And that was a great breakthrough for me because it means that um, people in Congo and Burundi and also as well, obviously, in, as, as France and Belgium can read my read my work. But um, uh, but no, I mean, I, I think um, for me, the best book on, on Ru- Rwanda r- uh, remains um, the two books written by Gérard Prunier, who is um, a, a French historian, but they, he writes in English. Um, and I think they're they're very uh, matter of fact, and they just lay out the facts, and that's what you want. Um, uh, I I also um, uh, am a big uh, fan of uh, René Le Marchand, who is a French academic now in his eighties, who is based in Florida, and um, he recently published a memoir. But all of his books are interesting, and I think the one that most people read is Rwanda and Burundi. Uh, and that that dates back dates back quite a quite a few decades. I mean, one of the problems of the Great Lakes is people tend to examine and study um, uh, Rwanda in isolation uh, from the Great Lakes, and they don't realize how you know what happened in Rwanda was also in partly a response to what had happened in Burundi and the mass killings and the genocides that happened in Burundi beforehand. And they also tend not to realize. Um, how how important the react the relation between Rwanda and Congo has been a very destructive relation, uh, especially recently, of course. Um, and then I, you know, because I spent a lot of time in Congo, because Congo is integral to the Great Lakes story. Um, I think there's a fantastic book called by David Van Raybrook, um, who who wrote it originally in Flemish, uh, but it's been translated beautifully into English and into French. And it's just called Congo. And it's a big book, but very, very readable. And I I really, really enjoyed it. So um, those are three writers that I think are really, really excellent. Uh, Michaela, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me.